Albo's new Labor ministry, does the media have class bias, and Dutton imports culture wars. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday for this Wednesday, the 1st of June, 2022, and we are now in the second week of a Labor federal government here in the great Commonwealth of Australia. And I am being joined from what looks like an almost sunny city on the harbour by the great, (laughs) the glorious, best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and of course, Guardian columnist Van Batham. How are you, my love? Hello, my love. I miss you terribly, and I miss the dog terribly, but we do have the miracle of technology to keep the show on the road, show being the literal thing that we do with our relationship these days in this horrible period of our um, obliged separation. I'm all right. It is a beautiful day in Sydney, very windy, but uh, who leaves the house anyway? Um, I just want to say hello to everybody who might live around the beautiful Etalong area as I will be interviewing best-selling author Hannah Kent at Words on the Waves this weekend and also talking about internet conspiracy cults, disinformation and the new political reality myself at that wonderful festival. I've also got appearances coming up at the Willy Lit Festival in Williamstown and also uh, in Mount Waverley uh, for the other writers festival that I'm doing that I'll tell you all about by the end of the show. So if you live in any of those places, you should bring your copy of QAnon and on for me to sign or buy a copy there or just say hello and uh, we can chat. That'd be awesome. We love meeting people who listen to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And of course, as much as possible, I will come with you, darling. Uh, It's always nice being a team together on the road, actually. (laughs) I really, I really feel so. I've noticed the difference that I feel so much more comfortable doing public events when you are around. I mean, not just because often I get targeted by complete loons uh, with conspiracy beliefs, and I feel safer if you're physically there, but also just feels like our life together is an ongoing conversation around the values and politics that we share, and it's just nice for you to be a part of what I do, really. Yeah, well, I love being there and I always get a little kick out of people who come up to me and go, you know, they've lined up and they've had their book signed by you and they've had a chat with you and then they come up to me sort of standing and lurking in the shadows and go, I listen to the podcast too. Thanks so much for what you do too, Ben. So that that does make my day, I have to say. I'm a simple man who enjoys simple acknowledgements of his existence. You are the best, though. Anyway, uh, we were we did receive some feedback on the internet the other day about the lovey-dovey stuff. I do apologise. Ben and I are spending a lot of time apart. Uh, if the lovey-dovey stuff is too much for people, uh, please file this as a uh, comment. But Ben would also like to make a huge apology to regular listeners of The Weekend Wrap. Yes, uh, I, it has been brought to my attention that I was a bit sniffly on Sunday and that that may have been a bit off-putting for some people and that some people were actually concerned for my welfare. I got like eight messages from people going, is Ben all right? Is he sick? I was like, what has happened? Well, for those who were concerned, I did a rat test and it came up negative uh, and no, I, I don't feel particularly sick. It's just that at the on that particular day, I literally, the first people I spoke to were the good listeners of the Weekend Wrap. And so my voice and my whole kind of 
uh, you know, uh, ear, nose, and throat situation was all a bit snuffly and, and stuffed up. So, yes, yeah, I, so I should point out that Ben is rather devoted to the game of round ball, and you might be aware that rather a lot of international round ball games are broadcast quite late on a Saturday night, which is, of course, just before he does the weekend wrap on Sunday. I'm not saying there's a correlation, <laughs> I'm saying there might be some circumstantial evidence. Speaking of circumstantial <laughs> evidence, let's talk about the new Labor ministry, because there's plenty of circumstantial evidence. Some would say hard evidence that Albo has picked a group of winners to take this country forward, Van. Oh, it's it's very exciting. I mean, number one is it's the largest number of women in Cabinet ever. Cast your mind back, friends, to 2013 when Tony Abbott had but one woman, Julie Bishop, in his entire cabinet and it meant that at the time Australia had even less women in its cabinet than Afghanistan, uh, which is which was kind of extraordinary. Um, but now there are 10 uh, women in the cabinet, very senior portfolios. It's extremely exciting. It is exciting. It is exciting. And, look, people have asked us, uh, on social media, uh, through some of our email channels as well, you know, some somewhat detailed questions about how these things are set, who makes the decisions, um, how factions work, um, why certain people got certain jobs and others didn't. Um, and we'll get into some of the more detail around some of the particular jobs. But I wanted to give people an overview, and Van, you might want to even ask me some of the questions that people have have raised um, in on our social media channels about how these things happen, because there is certainly been some terrible media reporting, and we'll talk about that later on. But it's important that people understand that that factions factions exist in everything right like factions are a term that is used to describe groupings of people where so, there is where there is a group of three people there are factions that's right that's a fundamental rule and who sides with whom and who gangs up on whom and the rest of it there is no such thing as a workplace that doesn't have factions every management team has factions every theater company has factions this is a fundamental rule of life and what what labor the labor party essentially does is it sort of recognizes that that reality exists and in a political environment that reality can be quite toxic if it's not properly managed effectively. So in terms of the Labor Ministry, in terms of the Ministry of the Commonwealth Government of Australia, uh, it's proportional. So there's 16 from the broad right and 14 from the broad left. And just from the outset, I want people to understand because there was a bit of strange reporting on this this morning as well. The Labor Party are a centre-left Labourist party. Everybody in the Labor Party believes in some fundamental values. They are collectivism. That is, a fist is stronger than five fingers. You're stronger together than you are alone. When you're a laborist, you believe that working people through the organized movement of the working class, which is the trade union movement, should have an electoral mobilization to ensure that they can rule their own lives. That's what laborism is. It literally means rule by the people who work. And that's what the Labor Party and Labor Parties across the world exist to do. You know, collectivist laborists, uh, that's inherently a left-wing position. 
And yes, within that broad church of um, of the centre left, there are people who um, are more pro business and support the notion of free enterprise yeah. than others who may believe in what we call the socialization of industry, which is various industries like essential services or a major collective infrastructure like electricity should be under the control of the state. Yeah. Right? So when, and that's, that's a division. So when So when I talk about broad left and broad right, I'm talking about that very narrow part of the left-right spectrum. If you think about politics as a left-right spectrum, Labor, all Labor people are on the left, um, to, the, to the left of the centre. There are some people in the Labor Party who are slightly more to the centre than they are to the left and some people who are slightly more to the left than they are to the centre. That's probably the easiest way to think about it. But it is really important because I read an article this morning that described various people in the Labor Party as right-wingers and it's like, well, they're not really, are they? Because no. they believe in things like unions and state ownership of enterprise and, yeah. and decision-making. Like, that's not, they're not right-wing positions, people. No, and when you think about some of the people who are described as right-wingers, some of them are, you know, long-term trade unionists. I'm, I've heard people talk about Richard Miles as being a right-winger. Of course, former uh, assistant secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Richard Miles. Yeah, and former TWU official, Richard Miles. You know, so look, these are not these are these are terms, and in fact, there are people who are in the quote unquote broad right who prefer the term progressives. Right, they're the progressives rather than the left wingers. Um, people in the left generally don't mind being called left wingers or the left or some version of that. But it's also important to note that. These things are not set in stone, right? So one of the things I think people get uh, can be confusing for people is that it shifts. And effectively, you have to remember the Labor Party is, like Australia, a federation. Every state uh, has a Labor Party branch and those state branches are how the factions effectively line up. Then they go to Canberra and they're proportionally represented in things like the ministry. So some states end up being slightly overrepresented. So South Australia is overrepresented, but that's because you've got people like Don Farrell, Mark Butler, Penny Wong, who are all leaders within their groupings and who are, of course, exceptionally high performers uh, who all happen to come from South Australia. So, so, So you do end up with those kinds of uh, unusual elements, right? But, but it's, a, it's a balancing act. And what is. the Labor cabinet is about, I mean, Labor believe in quota-based representation. When the Labor Party, like a lot of women and feminists in the Labor Party fought a very long, hard battle to enshrine quotas and quota preselection as a form of affirmative action within the party. And the party takes very seriously that notion of representation. So quotas are important to ensure that the the government or the shadow government before they achieve government looks as much like the Australian Labor Party and Australia as possible. So yeah. 
like quotas for uh, female representation, quotas for state representation, quotas for factional representation. Like they, it's a balancing act. It's never going to be completely right because obviously some people have intersectional identities within the particular caucuses. Various other factors come into play, like policy specialization. You know, in some portfolios, you really need like a high level of expertise. Mark Dreyfus becoming Attorney General, he's obviously a QC. He's the most senior legal mind in the in the party. He's an obvious choice for Attorney General, and things like that. Yeah, and I think I think it is important to note that the factional system is not set in stone because it is state based. Because it is. It, it does interact with affiliated unions. It interacts at a branch level. It's not set in stone. So sometimes I think people get a bit hung up and a bit obsessed about the idea of factions and, and what, what a particular faction is doing or how the faction system works. And the reality is it changes all the time. At any given time, there might be multiple sub-factions of the broad right or the broad left within a given state. And fundamentally, it's not as important. Uh, those issues are not as important as the performance of your MP, uh, the policy positions they take. And frankly, these things can change based on personality, like anything, right? There are people who don't get along, who don't want to work particularly closely together, uh, who may have the same values and broadly believe in the same goals, but when it comes down to it, are not going to work well in a team. So they're not put in portfolios that align with each other or where they'll need to work together as a team or they have their own groupings within a faction that do their own thing and operate within that system. So, yeah, broadly speaking, um, that's the, the how the factional system works varies from state to state. Well, who's in what faction in each state varies, what unions are in what varies, uh, and it's not something that, I intend to spend a lot of time on in the show, but there were some specific questions, Van, that people had um, that I think it is worth just touching on because they they they're obviously playing on quite a few people's minds. Yeah, it, it, and we did get a bunch of questions about it today, uh, and we'll just go through them really quickly. Um, who is in what faction? Well, Ben. Who so, is in what faction? So you can actually find this on Wikipedia, right? So if you go to Wikipedia and you search Labor Right and Labor Left, you'll get Wikipedia pages that list the members of the right and the left uh, for the Federal Caucus. That's They're not secret. It's not in any way hidden. In fact, New South Wales Left has a really fancy website, and if you Google New South Wales Left, you'll find all of the members, state and federal, who are in the New South Wales left on the website, most people are quite proud to be associated with that group of people. They hold a set of values that they share and they want people to know about it. So it's not secret. You can Google it. I'm not going to go into who's in what faction now because it's too difficult and complex. And, I mean, this is one of the reasons why factions exist. Like in government and opposition, time is of the essence and decisions have got to be made really quickly. What position are we taking on this? Where does this uh, where does this conform to or clash with existing policy? While all Labor parliamentary members are bound to policy which is set at a conference, whether they're, you know, in the left, in the right or indifferent, it, the point is that there are more than 100 ALP members in the federal caucus now who are all meeting together 
And if you've ever been in a committee meeting of six people, you know how <laughs> difficult it is to get to a decision. So the yeah. idea that you would sit a hundred people, and you know, I say this with great respect for our friends who hold representative office. Generally, people who are attracted towards politics are not are not people of small ego. The reticent socially and politically tend not to pursue that as as a vocational. Yeah, goal. but let's. And managing those decisions needs some efficiency, I think is a fair enough thing to say. Efficiency is the watchword of the day. Yes. So we have another question. Um, How do politicians decide which faction they are in? Well, like most things in life, where you end up usually depends on where you start. And uh, often a politician will start in a faction because the union that they join is in a particular faction or the person who you know uh, introduces them to the parties in a particular faction, they share those ideas. They get involved in particular activities. They get involved based on particular issues that have an alignment already to a faction, and so they'll they'll end up in that faction. Factions change, though. People can people change. People's ideas change. The, the world change. changes. You know, so, different issues rise to the fore that need to be dealt with in different ways and people take different positions on them. And that's fine. That's actually really healthy. Yeah. And basically, how do politicians decide which faction they're in? Like they make any other decision, they look at the facts, they look at the realities, they look at their beliefs, and then they make a decision. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, there is a question, how can an unaligned person like Andrew Lee, uh, who's the member for Fenner, get elected? And he is uh, he's an independent. He's not factionalised, even though he's a member of the Labor Caucus and he's just received um, an assistant ministry in the, in the ministerial appointments that went on today. Well, simply like he's from a branch where his pre-selection was determined by a vote of members and, of course, different branches function differently and that's how he got pre-selected. And he is, of course, a specialist. He has a PhD in economics from Harvard, which is pretty high level of uh, education and specialisation. And he's been given the assistant ministry for like treasury and charities and does very sort of specific policy work. So you don't have to be a member and competition. of a faction. And competition is the other one, yes. Um, it just depends on where you are like, and what opportunities are available to you. Somebody asked a question about Tanya Plibersek and is Tanya Plibersek in the right and is that why she uh, wasn't in the initial very small ministry? If you go to that uh, very fancy New South Wales left website, you'll see Tanya Plibersek is in the left and has been uh, her entire time in the Labor Party as far as I'm aware. Uh, But the initial group uh, already had three people from the left and two people from the right in it. And, of course, Albo himself, uh, while the leader is usually uh, removed from fa- from the faction once they become leader in a kind of weird ceremonial, not that there's a ceremony, but in a kind of symbolic um, symbolic thing where the leader sits apart, sort of a sort of an approach. Um, the having Tanya in would have meant another New South Wales left person as well. So it, it's simply a question of being proportional. No need to upset the balance and given the ministries that were were de- sort of desperately needed to be put in place, that wasn't wasn't required. Um, 
We have another not- question. Yeah. Um, why it, has it been a long time since someone from the left has been in the leadership? Yeah, look, that's a good question. Um, it, it comes down to where the numbers sit. Like Van's, like you said, Van, it's proportional, right? So the left, ha- the left has the number of caucus members that it has based on the number of people who are in the left of the Labor Party in each of the states and territories who pre-select people to to be in parliament. You would imagine that then plays out, and of course it does, and for a long time, uh, for one reason or another, the broad right, the progressives, if you, if you prefer, uh, in the Labor Party have had more members in more states than there have been people in left groups in the Labor Party in the states and territories. Um, that's not to say it's impossible, and obviously Albo came from the left in New South Wales and came from the left in New South Wales at a time when still you would say the progressives, the, the right, if you like, of Labor had the numbers, as is demonstrated by the proportionality in the ministries, but the, clearly there was a decision that Albo was the right person to lead the Labor Party, and hasn't that proven to be correct? Exactly. And this is the thing. I mean, speaking on a broader ideological level, which is, of course, my favourite thing, one of the things that Marx talks about, like the, the sort of intellectual uh, training that Marx came through was this notion of dialectics. Dialectics are a philosophical conversation where someone mounts an argument, a thesis, someone counteracts that argument, an antithesis, and in in the debate between the two positions that test out the validity of either philosophically, you get a synthesis. And the conversation between these different parts of the Labor Party is actually really important. I, as a left-wing person, would describe it as the most politically transformative conversation in the world because that discussion between what do we want and how do we get it, which is that constant tension of organised electoral left-wing politics represented by Labor, is how we actually get closer towards what Ben Shifley, the Labor Prime Minister, called the light on the hill, you know, the betterment of all humankind. And that light on the hill is the political orientation towards egalitarianism, fairness, transparency, diversity, inclusion, all of which are inherently left-wing values. So working out how we get closer to that light, that's we know like politics is a series of changing circumstances and different challenges, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly challenges. And the notion of a of a dialectic of, of two halves of a party committed to the same ultimate values, working out how to get closer to them is really important. You know, it's always really interesting when when people who are sort of outside the movement are like, labor factionalism. And I'm just like, but that's how you that's how you you test the thesis. That's how you work out what you can do next. That's how you stay where the people are and keeping your eye on the electoral game to make sure you are still representing the people who elected you at the same time as pursuing ideological goals and making structural change and transformation. I think, Van, some of the changes that have happened from the shadow ministry to the ministry have, you know, elicited some comments, some query, some confusion from people. And and I think it's worth us just touching on a few of them 
because there's been, I think, some misunderstandings about some of it and some of it framed in a way that I think is just wrong. Um, and, and I think the first thing to do is to say one of the things that has happened is that Richard Miles, who's the deputy leader of the party, has um, chosen to be defence minister. And, and the way the Labor Party works is if you're the deputy leader, one of the perks of that particular job is that you get to pick your portfolio. That's to encourage stability within the leadership group and to ensure that the de- the person who becomes deputy doesn't feel like they you know, got a hollow job. Anyone who's ever watched an episode of Veep knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> You know, it's. I'd much prefer to be a deputy prime minister in Australia <laughs> than be vice president in the United States. And and Richard Miles obviously has a long-standing interest in defence. Now people go, oh, Brendan O'Connor's been demoted. Let's be really clear: he's going to be the minister for skills and training. Labor has made a huge policy commitment in skills and training. 465,000 fee-free TAFE places, 45,000 new TAFE places. $50 million into a TAFE technology fund, $100 million for new energy apprenticeships, 10,000 additional people completing skills like the ones we need for offshore wind and green hydrogen industries, and shifting the balance of funding away from privatized vocational training organizations towards public and making the balance a 70-30 balance, whereas previously it had gone almost entirely the other way. That's actually a huge job and a very important job in a new Labor government. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. And, of course, uh, Brendan O'Connor is a former Shadow Minister for Industrial Relations and he's been around for a long time, but he has and a lot of these appointments because the very rarely does a ministry work alone, like skills and training is not is not divisible from education or employment or industrial relations, when you look at things like apprenticeships and and TAFE and where all of these things fit into a different mix, there are people who across several policy areas who have the experience to make intersectional decisions and are a referent with the policy specialty of the other um, portfolio areas. And that's quite an important skill set to have. Absolutely. I think the other big one that people have just totally gotten wrong, in in my view, is the way they've described Tanya Plibersek's ministry. Yeah, this has been really interesting. So I received a lot of messages today saying, has Tanya been demoted? And apparently a couple of journalists have said this today. No, uh, I think you'll notice that the environment was actually quite a big deal during the election and has emerged as a policy priority, not just for the Labor Party, but for hmm, the Australian people. Tanya Plibersek is one of the most popular politicians in Australia, not just now, but of all time. She is an extremely experienced um, uh, policy leader, and that's a really crucial portfolio. It's crucial for two reasons. One, because Labor have promised an enormous amount of environmental uh, regulatory change. Yes, the person who was Shadow Minister for the Environment, who probably in another universe might be holding the portfolio now is Terry Butler, but Terry Butler is now out of Parliament and this project of regulatory reform and the creation of an environmental protection agency in Australia, which is huge policy, is going to somebody who has the leadership, the authority, the popularity and the credibility to really like lead that massive policy change. 
Yeah, I think I think it's a fantastic appointment, and I think Tanya's going to do that really difficult work. You know, it's 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 moved beyond consultation now. There are clear reports. Graham Samuels did a report on reforming the Act that the Morrison government did nothing on for two years. And now it'll be about building the machinery of government and changing the legislation and the regulation to make that machinery work. And frankly, if, if you want to build new government machinery, Tanya Plibersek is the person to get it done. Jason Clare is another person who, you know, has been described as having received a promotion. And in some ways, I think that's probably a fair description. Jason, of course, comes from housing where he did a great job lifting the profile of housing as a Commonwealth portfolio, did some really good work on policy. And he really championed inclusion issues around housing as well, looking at the reality that there are communities of disadvantaged Australians whose marginalisation is perpetuated by you know the failure of nine years of coalition government to address housing shortages and create public and social housing. And he really championed that that cause of of inclusion and structural reform. And I think when you consider the way he approached that portfolio, education is a really good fit. Yeah. Because at a federal level, you know, the federal government doesn't run schools. It doesn't run um, it doesn't run primary schools or secondary schools. Uh, it funds universities, but it doesn't actually run them. Uh, and so somebody who's got that good stakeholder management, someone who's got a good concept about how to bring people together. You know, Labor, Labor's promises in this area are to have 20,000 more university places, an extra almost half a billion dollars of funding to universities, and the establishment of a university's accord. You want someone who can bring stakeholders together, who can sit down and actually work through the issues to develop a consensus view. That's what an accord is. And, and certainly somebody like Jason is really the person for that job. Um, you know, schools funding is also about managing stakeholders. The Commonwealth may not run the schools, but it does provide quite a lot of funding and managing the states and being the person to pony up the cash or sometimes not pony up the cash uh, requires a, a significant, you know, requires a certain personality type to be able to do that. And anybody who saw Jason on the campaign trail as campaign spokesperson would probably agree he's a good choice for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, the other thing is that Jason's, you know, heaven in front of the media and a bit of a king of the devastating one-liner. And let's remember with Peter Dutton as the new leader of uh, the op- what is now the opposition, uh, it, which I will never, ever get sick of saying, we're going to talk about his specific, um, his specific performance later. Yes. But... I mean, education is traditionally a place where the Liberals really love to run a bit of culture war politics. Obviously, Ben and I are both veterans of the student movement. We were student politicians ourselves and watched how successive Liberal governments have done everything they can to socially engineer Australia into a more conservative, less creative, less inclusive space by their higher education policy in particular. And given the ideological predilections of Mr Dutton, uh, having someone like Jason in that portfolio to fight back against cultural incursion attempts, I think it will actually make really great television. I mean, (laughs) politics. But, of course, you know, people 
shouldn't think that that means housing is going to be uh, relegated to to some kind of you know second tier situation. Julie Collins is stepping into housing, homelessness, and small business, and this is really making a comeback. Julie Collins spent the last few months of the final Rudd government in housing and homelessness, and uh, you know was minister in that space. It's obviously a key portfolio for Albo. It's a key portfolio for the country. The the focus on housing. Uh, there are lots of programs here. The new Help to Buy program, $10 billion Housing Australia Fund, aiming to build 30,000 homes in the first five years, uh, and regional first home buyer policy and the remote housing policies. So this is somebody who has experience in the portfolio, stepping in, picking up the good work that Jason's already done, adding to that small business. I, I think of this as kind of like a foundational uh, portfolio. You know, if you want to have a strong Australia. If you want to have a strong economy, you need a strong focus on housing. That is housing stock. How do we do it? Making sure people aren't homeless, addressing homelessness as quickly as you can so that you're not wasting potential. You're not wasting the opportunity that people have within themselves uh, and facilitating small business to, to grow and be that engine room of the economy that, that uh, you know, is so often quoted as being in the media. So I think, you know, that's a good that's a good fit there too. You know, it's about keeping the balances in place. But Van, one of the people who has been made minister to great acclaim to his sector, uh, I noticed uh, Kurt Fernley, Dylan Alcott, uh, advocates from right across the spectrum came out before the ministries were announced and were advocating for this particular person to retain the portfolio he had in uh, as a shadow minister and to really finish the work that he helped start back under Julia Gillard, uh, your friend and mine, uh, Mr. Bill Shorten. is Yeah, being- Bill Shorten back in the ministry. He is minister for the NDIS. It is now a portfolio responsibility now, which says a lot. In the cabinet. Yeah, in the cabinet. It's a cabinet ministry uh, and that is really significant because – you know, the NDIS, a lot was said in the campaign, it's become bigger than Medicare. It was totally mismanaged by the Liberals in government and nationals who were there as well, although it is tempting to forget. Uh, and the scope of the NDIS and the problems with that system under the coalition were extraordinary. Articles today about how um, the NDIA, the agency that runs the NDIS, is spending like $50 million on lawyers to defend cases from claimants in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, that there has been waste, mismanagement, outsourcing, all of those things. Well, Bill Shorten is a union man. He has brought union values of inclusion and representation and fairness to the disabilities portfolio and to the NDIS portfolio as a shadow minister. And I actually think it's a, it, it's an excellent Appointment. I mean, you'll remember that uh, Anthony Albanese ran against Bill Shorten for the leadership of the party back in 2013 after Labor were defeated in the Rudd versus Abbott election. You know, like it's it, it speaks to both men that they have found a, a means of of of. Uh, they've found a means of being in the same place at the same time, making a contribution to a shared cause. I think speaks really highly to both of them. And Bill Shorten put out a tweet today saying that it was an honour to serve in the Albanese cabinet and he would not let Albanese down. 
Yeah, look, I think it's I think it is remarkable, and I think during the campaign they campaigned together. Um, Albo said some really lovely things about uh, Bill. Bill said some really lovely things about Albo, uh, and I think it does speak to, to the character of both men that their their commitment to Australia, their commitment to the to the people of this country and the party goes beyond whatever damage may have been done to their individual egos over the years. Uh, and frankly, you know, that's what politics is. If you've never uh, been in politics, get a dog. Get a dog. That's what they say. The other thing that Bill will be responsible for as Minister for Government Services, of course, is the establishment of a Royal Commission into robo-debt. How fun and, is this going to be? And reforms. It will roll. They will be, absolutely roll. It's going to be an interesting time. Um, you mentioned uh, Mark Dreyfus, of course, will be the Attorney General responsible for the establishment of a National Integrity Commission. Can't that wait. Be, can't wait. Just classic. can't wait. Can't wait. I, clean, I it up, touch, clean it all up. Polish it clean. I want to touch on Tony Burke as well because he's been made Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations and the Arts and somebody tweeted that Tony Burke is living every union official's best life right now, um, which given he is a former SDA union official, I think that's probably true. I think Tony Burke, you know, he loves to play his guitar. He loves the arts. Oh, he loves wear your band T-shirt, Australian band T-shirt day. He loves it. I've been to a couple of arts policy launches with Tony Burke. And let me tell you, this is a man who has enthusiasm for the portfolio. He had a media release like out immediately, like the moment he was announced as the arts minister, he wrote a media release I have seen shared all over social media because you can imagine I am a working artist, my friends are working artists, and everybody's like, oh, my God, sharing this media release where he's like, there's been nine years of attacks on this sector, I'm going to fight back, there will be big policy announcements, we're going to have, uh, you know, like bold creative policy, you know, we can make Australia an arts nation, that kind of stuff. And the sector is just like, really? Like, this is happening? You know, what is this strange, this strange bright yellow feeling inside? Is it hope? <laughs> yeah. And look, Tony Burke is absolutely one of these people who gets into the ministries that he has responsibility for. And certainly with the arts, you know, some people would say, oh, it's an unusual combination, workplace relations, employment and the arts. Why? Why well, is that an unusual because, combination? Because it, it because it hasn't been the usual combination of portfolios. But you're absolutely <laughs> right. The arts is a big out of work like the majority of the time. The, the, I would the, think the, the arts and employment were the most logical relationship of all time. And I think and I think that's the kind of thinking that Tony brings to it. You know, he's also come out very strongly already and said Labor will criminalise wage theft. It will introduce minimum standards for gig workers. It will deliver same job, same pay to stop Labor hire undercutting wages. And it will make both gender equity and job security a purpose and aim of the law. Um, and, and can I just say this, that that, um, that Tony Burke uh, you know, has driven the idea that Labor can raise wages, that, that that's an important thing that, that they need to do. And he's already come out and said that people should join their union. And we say this every episode. I'm going to say it right now. The Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations and the Arts says you should join your union. So, so go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join your union right now. There's a new Australian Unions ad out. I've tweeted it already from from my account. You'll see it across our social media channels over the next few days for the week on Wednesday. Literally never been a better time to join a union because now it's not only all of the industrial 
benefits of union membership. It's that you're part of something. You are part of, of the change that's taking place in this country, the new paradigm, the new opportunities of a new government. Like this is a government that believes in unions and sees their importance and is creating opportunities in the economy and in the, and in the society around us for working people. Like now is the time. Absolutely. And by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, Tony Burke also apparently owns the Caucasus' most impressive Bible, a a a family relic, a family heirloom from when his family fled Ireland. It's incredibly impressive uh, piece of um, uh, religious publication. Yeah, that's that's what I'm looking to say. <laughs> I've got to say, it has been really great watching the. Um, Watching the caucus of of the new government and the the Labor Party and government look like Australia, like there was this incredibly, it was incredibly moving to see the photo of the Labor team that's come out of Western Australia, and the fact that you see so many different identities of Australia represented. Like it looks like the community I grew up in. Yeah. You know, and that's that's really exciting. People, the thing about diversity is you don't lose any less pride in in your own direct connection to various communities. And I've got to say, there was a lot of Irish Catholic being moveness <laughs> in this house today with my mum and I, Jed Carney, you know, Tony Burke, Patty Gorman, like you, you know, we felt it. Like but look, you know, we've had ministers swear swear their oaths on a Quran. Um, we we've had uh, Penny Wong tweet that the Malaysian caucus has doubled thanks to the new member for Tangi. Um, you know, we've had Linda Burney become the first Indigenous woman to hold the portfolio and and to be focused on the portfolio, delivering on voice recognition services for Indigenous uh, Australians. Uh, and- I've got to say, I've got to make a personal declaration. So my mum used to work with Linda Burney. Uh, back in the day, they both worked in the Ministry of Education in New South Wales and were public servants. And mum watched Linda on TV today be sworn in with the most incredible pride and Linda started to cry and my mother started to cry. So I started to cry and I made this point on Twitter, you know, like Tories see power as their birthright. It's their entitlement. And they sort of just take it without ceremony. But for someone like my mum, like a working class woman who left school at 15, who found her path in the public service and, you know, met people like Linda and had this sort of transformative experience, the idea that my mother personally knows somebody who's become a minister, like I called it the long, slow revolution, because in the history of all hitherto existing society, the idea that you could be a working class person, you know, like a a, a public servant and know anyone who had power on that level was unheard of. Like this is a recent phenomenon in human history and it just meant the world to to mum and to us and obviously to Linda, um, who was just extraordinary. And she got the biggest cheer of the yeah. day. Yeah. Look, it's it's great. I'm going to very quickly touch on a couple of others because then we do need to move on. Um, Mari Watt steps into Cabinet with Agriculture and Emergency Management. That's clear recognition of the great work he's done. He really but also did. the impact disasters have on our ag sectors. Claire O'Neill uh, will take up 
uh, Home Affairs. Now that I Christian- think that's a fantastic appointment. Claire is a highly intelligent, very organised, meticulous person, and I think Home Affairs is a great portfolio for her. And pairing it with cybersecurity, which I think is a real acknowledgement that actually Home Affairs, cybersecurity, the issue of disinformation, the very things you talk about in your book, Van, uh, are real and uh, quite a threat to our country. Immigration has come out of Home Affairs and is now sitting with Andrew Giles, of course, a former immigration uh, lawyer. Yes, Andrew Giles represented the people who were on the Tampa. He is a long-term refugee activist and ally. He is an extraordinary humanitarian. He is a fantastic appointment. Uh, and then, of course, Catherine King from my hometown of Ballarat, um, I'm sort of dubbing her the Minister for Clearing Out the Rorts because she's got infrastructure, transport, regional development and local government, which is a big portfolio. Partly it's so big because over the last decade, the Liberals and the Nationals in particular have stuffed it full of pork, uh, made it a little piggy bank for themselves, uh, and now these people are going to come under what I like to call the very hawkish eye of Catherine King. Catherine Uh, King is uh, the cleaner. And it's a big cleanup job, but also there's a lot of stuff to be delivered in that space as well. So it's not as though she's not going to be doing um, positive things, but there is a lot for, for Catherine to do there. Can we talk about what it means to have a woman in that portfolio as well? Like traditionally the portfolios around building things are seen as boy portfolios, you know, and like Catherine is she is from Ballarat. She has, you know, campaigned in her original seat for decades. You know, she's more than well aware of what the issues and intersections around things like transport, development, regional economics are. And, you know, that's important. Like it's important to degender these portfolios. Oh, absolutely. And I've look, I've seen some of the industry bodies come out and say, you know, welcome Catherine King, our first ever uh, woman to hold the portfolio of infrastructure or transport or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and, you know, she was being, when she was shadow minister for most of those things, I think they've added local government, but when she was shadow minister, you know, front and centre on the, with the TWU and the ASU and the AMWU around the Qantas disputes. So look, I think she'll do a great job. I think it's a big, big portfolio, but certainly, um, someone with the experience and the capacity to get it done very briefly. These things also don't just, portfolios don't operate, as you said, Van, they don't operate by themselves. People interact. And there's a couple of, I think, potential teams that I want to just touch on. Because in the in the health space, you've got Mark Butler, Jed Carney, Emma McBride, Melendira McCarthy, and that covers health, aging, mental health, regional health, Indigenous health. I mean, that is a powerhouse group of people mm. who understand that port- those portfolios, under- have firsthand knowledge of it, can work together. You know, you, you'd love to see that coming together as a group and, and operating really as a team of ministers and, sh- and um, assistant ministers, don't you? Oh, Jed Carney appointed to the outer ministry in a health portfolio is a dream. Jed Carney is a former shop, shop floor nurse. And, you know, her contribution will be absolutely invaluable. One of the teams I'm particularly excited about is the pairing of Tanya Plibersek in environment with Chris Bowen in climate change and energy. Like to just to understand the centrality of climate change policy to the new Albanese government, I just want everybody to get on Wikipedia and look up Chris Bowen and look up just how many portfolios he has held over his time in the federal parliament because he is literally the minister for everything. 
Like there are very, very few policy areas that he hasn't had a direct leadership experience in. And the idea that you would bring somebody with that breadth to that and, you know, with that kind of leadership heft to that portfolio and pair him with the unbelievably, you know, popular and influential tenure, that's that's really a statement on just how seriously Albanese's government is taking the climate and environment issue. But I also think um, you've got uh, Jenny McAllister in there as a minister assisting. Uh, you've got Madeleine King, who's got a focus on um, resources. Don Farrell, who's got a focus on trade. Don uh, Farrell is an excellent choice for trade. As anybody who's in county, the uh, senator knows, this is a, is a man whose uh, ability to account for exchanges and <laughs> trades is well known and well admired. <laughs> And then you've got Tim Ayres, um, who comes from a manufacturing background with the AMWU, not the AWU, as the media incorrectly said earlier today, but uh, also with a bit of a focus on trade. So, you know, there's going to be some really interesting um, exchanges and, and policy debates among that group of people and how that plays out, I think, is going to be fascinating. It's a huge shift. Like from where we were three weeks ago to where we are now, the people, you know, I, I think I said to Bill uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, when I was congratulating him, publicly congratulating him on Twitter, um, it's so good to have someone who's for the NDIS as the minister for the NDIS yeah. as opposed to someone who sees it as a punishment. And right across the portfolios, you can see all this energy of people who want to do this work. They want these jobs. They want to make a difference. Such oh, a huge shift. Yeah, and uh, the people who've been in pro- who, who've been promoted include people like Anne Ali, who's like one of the most brilliant people in the parliament. Like it's it's a really exciting time. I think a lot of our friends and comrades are quite thrown and I've certainly been getting messages about this going it just feels so weird to be optimistic and to not be on the defensive all the time. And certainly, you know, for people like us that champion opportunity and champion egalitarian values, it's been a really long nine years. It's been a really long nine years if you recognise the implicit threat of climate change to watch a government who just didn't seem to think the death of all humanity was really that much of a concern. Like that's, it's been psychologically difficult to weather that if you are emotionally invested in these issues. And like I said, you know, watching the arts community go, he doesn't hate us. He wants to help online today. Really says something to the sort of defensive mentality we've all had to develop over the past decade. Absolutely. Look, one of the things that we've had to def- defend ourselves against too is is this concept that really, you know, the question has to be asked, Van, has the media in Australia particularly over the last decade, developed a class bias? Has it it gravitated? All of my colleagues in the media, I am honoured to join you. I I have great admiration for people in the media, especially because, and I've made this point before, you know, media jobs are requiring more and more and more effort and overwhelmingly with less and less and less job security and and pay realistically yeah. since the digital disruption it is hard to make a living as a journalist to find those opportunities that being said i have been made aware given the fact that i come from what turns out to be an atypical class experience uh, as a media person 
of the of the limitations of experience uh, that dominate my colleagues demographically. And and there was an article in the Guardian where you were interviewed by someone around this issue, right? That that I was, actually I was interviewed as a as I was interviewed for a feature piece in the in the Guardian um, by a writer who was writing about cultural gatekeeping in the arts and. Do like we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion yeah. in the arts and in you know other workplaces, of course. Very rarely do you get a question in your, your diversity survey form about whether you're from a working class family, let alone a welfare class family. Very rarely are you even asked if you went to state school. And as I told the interviewer, like this is the prejudice in Australia that dare not speak its name because it's a prejudice that. That unfortunately, there is a tradition of classism, um, a lot of which is unconscious, but it definitely exists. And and there were some examples today that that sort of rang my bell as as a Labor government is being sworn into power, sworn into office. You know, has achieved the biggest majority since 2013. Thank you very much. And the journalists confuse the. Australian Workers' Union with the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. Yeah. Now, look, if you're listening to this show and you go, well, I'd get that confused too, that's fine. You're listening to a podcast. You're not employed by a major media outlet to get the facts right. It was pretty extraordinary. And it speaks to a sense of, oh, it sort of doesn't matter because it's a working class thing. The AMW and the AWU can be interchangeable for some sections of the media because really it's just, it's like when they call, um, you know, our good friend and comrade Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, they call her a union boss. And that drives me wild because the union movement is established to counterbalance the power of bosses. Yeah. Like if you, if you work directly for Sally McManus, you could call her your boss. She won't like that, but technically you could call her that. But if you're in the media and you're calling her a quote-unquote union boss, then you're adopting a narrative that dismisses the experience of working people, the democratisation of working people and, and how union and how working people create power for themselves Not in this Not to system. mention Sally McManus was elected yes. to a democratic process. Not many CEOs are, I have No, to no, and union leadership is a matter of election. That is how that system works. It is, it is really, it, I've got to say, watching the coverage today, and I think it was because I was in the lounge room with mum who was so emotional about Linda and about the whole thing and people who she's met and, in, and sort of engage with over the course of her life, you know, it. it's really the, the thing about calling Tim Ayres, Tim Ayres is from the Australian Workers' Union, like that's a clangor to people like us. It's like he's absolutely positively AMWU and one of the new <laughs> Labor senators called it out online as well. She was like, yeah. that's a really embarrassing gaffe. And it was also when Jed Carney was um, being sworn in as well that they seemed to mention every job she'd ever had, if it was sort of a middle-class one, oh, she was a director of nursing and, and and she's former leader of the ACTU. I don't think they called her a union boss, thank, thank God. But what distracted me was they didn't mention the most significant job that Jed ever had, which was she was a nurse 
She was a nurse. She is from the shop floor. She is very proud of being a nurse. When she first ran for parliament, her pamphlet said, send a nurse to Canberra. Like that's who she is. She has never forgotten where she's come from in her head, even though she's an MP, even though she's been president of the ACTU. Jed is a nurse. And watching all the nurses on social media just like I feel so represented. I know this person stands for me. You know, we need more nurses in parliament. What a better country this would be if we had more nurses in parliament. It was just one of those things. And it was just like they don't understand who we are as a people. They don't understand who we are as a class. They don't understand who we are as a community or as a culture. There are different classes in this country and they have different rituals and they have different behaviours. And respect has to be given to working class people and the structures we created and the, and the hundreds of years of history where we had to build our own organisations because, because we had emerged from serfdom and, and our political antecedents gave their lives and their freedom in order for successive generations to be able to run and elect people like Jed for Parliament, like- yeah, oh, it 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 is infuriating, and I would encourage people at this point. So, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, keep listening to this podcast because there'll be more and more, uh, you know, on these sort of topics in the future. But also check out on the job the Australian Unions podcast. They've got a whole range of resources now, socially democratic, which is the more more right, if you like, of the <laughs> Labor podcasts. It's the social democrat podcast. <laughs> uh, Marcus Paul, who's a very good friend of ours, who's uh, running his podcast, Marcus in the Morning. Yeah, um, on iHeartRadio Starter FM, and you can find that online or through the app, the iHeartRadio. Uh, and of course, the New Daily is a, is a really good source. Uh, as well, uh, you know, non-Murdoch, uh, non-Costello source of source of news. And, and I then, have a column in the Guardian today. Were you going to mention that? Did I just? Uh, yeah, of course. And you have a column in the Guardian today. Always read Van's columns, whether they're in the Guardian or the New York Times. It's always <laughs> worth a read. And Bloomberg, Bloomberg once as well. <laughs> Bloomberg, and the, that's and right. the Telegraph in Britain, which was an odd experience, but <laughs> I did it twice. Um, but Van, you know, talking about the consequences of these things, right? Because when the media is so accustomed to the drip and it doesn't bother to understand or it doesn't have the resources or whatever, whatever the reason is that it, this situation occurs. The drip, by the way, is in in the before yes, time. Yes, when the minister just gives you the information and yes, you just so read you get it. stories because the people in government offices give them to you yeah. and they threaten you by turning off the supply of information, turning off the drip. If you're interested in the drip, watch the thick of it with Peter Capaldi. It's well worth a binge. Well, favorite show, and if it was a person, he would marry it. Yeah. <laughs> well worth a binge on a wintry weekend. But the consequence, Van, right? The consequence of this lack of class analysis is somebody like Peter Dutton, right? Oh Peter Dutton, God. who can just mass import culture wars from the USA. He has. You know the softer side of Peter Dutton has lasted less th- lasted less than a day, right? His first thing he did was go, oh, "I'm going to be, a, you know, I've got a soft heart," and then he immediately said he supported the federal ICAC because it should focus on, and I quote, "the unholy alliance between the CFMEU, MUA, and Labor." That's why he'd support it. And Rushton's had to walk that back today because somebody's obviously pointed out. We did that. There's a whole Royal Commission on that. Didn't find much. 
mm, fragile ICAC's probably going to do more damage to us. And then, of course, yeah, really? followed, <laughs> he's followed it up with the Hollis Bolus importation of a Trumpian Republican theme yep. to attack teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's attacking teachers. This is what I said, you know, about why Jason Clare is a good education appointment because the Liberals love a culture war around education and, you know, communists corrupting good young minds. When I was a student politician, um, one of my very favourite encounters was going to see a National Party MP who decided to inform the, the room full of student politicians who were trying to keep our student unions open that student unions were bad because they turned good country girls into lesbians. I was just like, that's not really how that works, mate. But no. um, it was an extraordinary experience. And hey, well, anyway, but um, getting back to the point, yeah, Peter Dutton got up and was like, oh, yeah, the teacher unions that control the ALP. And this is why Ben and I are politely encouraging my media colleagues who may not be from a working class background, let alone sure. a union one, or have any familiarity with with the movement, you know, and the movement is both the unions and its membership and the party as its electoral expression. The teachers' unions are not members of the Labor Party because <laughs> teachers' unions traditionally have, uh, like uh, industrially organise against state governments, which in this country are often run by the Labor Party. So it has been a point of teacher unions that to maintain their industrial integrity, they do not affiliate to the party. And it is absolutely gobsmacking that Peter Dutton could stand there literally talking American nonsense, like genuine American nonsense, and just subbing out the odd word here or there, like did he even begin with g'day, presumably. <laughs> I've got my talking points from Republican Party, g'day, Bonza. And, um, and we need a press corps in the new reality who are able to call that out because that is factually untrue. And going, I mean, by the way, Pete, could get this whole country quite a long way. It, it is genuinely bonkers. Um, extremist <laughs> teachers controlling the Labor Party. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are some teachers who would love to control the Labor Party uh, because they'd probably change a whole bunch of policies. Um, and, you know, some of the people I know from the teacher unions have been some of the most vocal critics of Labor governments. Yeah. It, it will come as a great surprise to them to learn that as of today, due to the decree of Peter Dutton, they now control the Labor Party. And I just love the notion of teacher extremists in this country as well. <laughs> Presumably he he means the teacher unions have who have done things like demand air conditioning and oh, extremists in a country like Australia undergoing climate change and record temperatures, extremists asking for air conditioners. Oh, my God. I mean, in a way, as you can imagine, being from the left side of politics, Ben and I are thrilled that the Liberals have appointed Peter Dutton to lead them because he'll be leading them into a hole, into a hole. And your your article today really goes into the detail on that. And, and so we won't, I won't spend a huge amount of time on that today because people should read your article because it makes the point and, and we've discussed it before on the there show. There will be a test later. The extremist <laughs> teachers are demanding it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. It now forms part of your entrance exam. Are you going to touch uh, that air conditioner? <laughs> but it is, it is a point, right? Like he claims to be a Menzies liberal, but already his statements put him outside that box. The BBC, this is a direct quote, the BBC has has as its headline staunch conservative to lead Australia opposition. I think they could probably add forever there. Um, and then 
you know, people are picking up on this already. You've got uh, Matt Burke, who's on Twitter all the time, um, just has Definitely. picked up. Matt T. Burke, one word, one of uh, the best accounts to follow on Ospol Twitter, absolutely. Has, has just gone back to Peter Dutton's, uh, if you're going to have a, pro-gay marriage song at the NRL Grand Final, you should have an anti-gay marriage song for balance. And everything now is a is a false equivalence tweet. So, uh, of course, Billy Bragg, the UK socialist, has uh, supported uh, Anthony Albanese recently. Sorry, Tim, is having socialism of the heart. And... <laughs> Ben and I, by the way, Ben and I can see one another on video and both of us instinctively, as we said, socialism, the heart, put our hands on our hearts. <laughs> and Matt, well, Matt, Burke, Extremists. <laughs> Matt Burke has tweeted that Dutton is now demanding that Albanese play an anti-Billy Bragg song for balance. Like it's just... just it's just going to be like that. But there are some serious things in there too. And, and, and Con... From the Australian um, uh, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Yep. Has, we, love, we love you, Con. Has made a list of some of the real culture fires that Peter Dutton started or stoked, where he's attacked refugees, migrants, women, um, our Pacific neighbours, uh, people who are unwell in Australia, and, and you know. People who um, own motorbikes, that's a favourite. According to Peter Dutton, the CFMEU are. Uh, universally um, bikey criminal gangs, and they're the reason why you can't afford your first home. There was some extraordinary speech a few years ago that literally just sounded like shouting at a wall. <laughs> Biking CFMU houses, you know. He, like, he really is what happens when a bot becomes a political leader. Like, <laughs> I just feel like every speech he's going to give is going to be. All right, let's feed every speech ever given by a Tory political leader in the last 20 years into a machine. Not just a Tory, a Tory who writes angry letters to newspapers. He's basically, there used to be this like deliberate satire genre of left-wing people who used to write the most outrageous letters of complaint to newspapers that could possibly come up with. Joe Wharton, one of my favourite playwrights ever, used to used to write letters of complaint about his own plays <laughs> under under the name Edna Wellthorpe. You know, and there's a tradition of this sort of pranksterism on the mm. left. Here's if all of those letters came to life and the satire of a right-wing person is now leading the Liberal Party. And all I can think, and this is a spoiler alert on my article today, is like, oh, that'll win back the Teal voters. That'll get them back. In God's team, they'll be racing towards you. And, look, the danger here, of course, is always that there, there will be disillusioned or disaffected people who will gravitate towards towards this. And while we know that because of the way Australia's political system is structured, read Van's article, they're unlikely to be able to secure power over the majority of us. They can cause disruption and they can do damage. And Peter Dutton is one of those people who is prepared to damage people, prepared to damage... Prepared to damage Australia. He was prepared to damage our relationships with the Pacific. Yeah, like- so... Penny Wong's first job as foreign minister was to start cleaning up the mess that Peter Dutton and his insane culture wars left behind. So we do, we will have to take him seriously and we will, on the week on Wednesday, we will have a focus on opposing the opposition because we do know that there needs to be good scrutiny of them uh, as they continue to get, you know, already getting a boost from Sky, getting a boost from the Murdoch Press, 
you know, all of the soft run pieces, and there's a big boosts, history behind it. getting boosts from people who need to become more culturally familiar with the movement which is now in government. So they don't, so they can evaluate those claims. Like it doesn't, in the media, it doesn't matter what your individual politics are. If you're in reportage, I mean, I have the privilege, I'm in opinion, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, my, I, other people put the facts on record and I have opinions about them. That's a very distinct journalistic job from reportage. But reportage only works when you understand the context of what you're reporting. And for people like Ben and I, it does get frustrating when, you know, like not acknowledging Jed is a nurse, getting the ADRU and the AMWU mixed up, not understanding that the, that the teachers' unions are not affiliated to the Labor Party and why. Like Labor governments are now in charge federally and in every state and territory in Australia apart from Tasmania and New South Wales. Like it is time to to understand the facts of of the new hegemony. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we're going to say the good news is that we actually have a Labor government that will do things about the environment, that will ensure we have a workforce capable of taking advantage of the 604,000 jobs that a clean energy revolution will bring to this country, including in offshore wind, including in green hydrogen. Uh, that's our good news story for this week. Yeah, disaster mitigation is going to happen. Imagine. You know, Imagine. The, the interaction between disasters and agriculture is now actually in one portfolio. Like all of these things, it's just there's so much. We've already gone well over time. Everybody who's stuck with us, we appreciate because we have, we have had a record month in May. I want to say... People's contributions to the week on Wednesday allowed us to stay advertising and growing our audience, even in the most difficult advertising market on social media that I've ever seen. There was so much money coming from Clive and the backers of Morrison, but you know we grew the audience because people shared the episodes, they liked them, you commented, people engaged, Van, and we got you know people went to our BuyMeACoffee.com/slash/week-on-Wednesday page, and you know every little bit was put towards getting the show out there. And of course, we contributed from our own pockets as well to make sure that we got over 48,000 downloads in the month of May, which is huge. Oh, and a huge- it's massive, you know, and, and we're so excited because we do the show because we're part, this is what I keep saying, you know, we're part of something. We're part of a movement. And it's a, it's a movement who Ben and I have found a role, which is to talk about, the values that are shared by us and our union comrades and and the activists for the causes that we believe in and with our listeners and and we're just that that sense of being part of a community that collective ethos that's everything to us and we hope it's everything to you as well we really appreciate all of the comments like you know the financial support is obviously helps grow the audience and that we appreciate that as well. But it is people who say, I joined my union, my son, my daughter joined their union. You know, we we listened to the podcast with workmates and talked about it pre-election, all those sorts of stories. Keep keep them coming. We respond as much as we can. Uh, you heard today we addressed some specific questions people sent us on social media about how the systems work. We'll do that whenever we can. But Van, I want us to acknowledge if you could read out for us the cadre, these are people who contribute. $20 a month uh, uh, to making the week on Wednesday grow its audience. Okay, I'm going to do it. You guys ready? 
watch this drama school training go. Kerry at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gimmard, someone, Punch Drunk Veteran at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official in Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Christine Cole, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn, Robbie, Brush, Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Jingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Cara and Will Robinson, Narissa Simon at Cadigal, Lauren Nash, Matthew Hadley at Narungaman, John Sharpen, Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as at Red, White and Blue Lou and Bronwyn. And now extending the reach supporters who give $10 a month, uh, Van. Oh, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Heinen at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Bo Sullivan, Eliana and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Jennifer Berkeley, Andrew Bryan, Tamara James, Peter O.C., Linda, Sam Hadid, Kiv Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, also known as Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Maritza at Carrydale 68 Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti at Didums, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Adrian Valente, Didums and that's it and of course, there are over 300 people who've made either one-off or buck-a-week contributions. Well, big thank you to all of you. If you want to support, go check out buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. You'll see links on our social media. Huge, huge week in Australian politics. We've really gone over time. I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, and in the words of the Albanese Labor government, Join your union. Yes. <laughs> and you can come see me talk at Words on the Waves up in Edelong this weekend. And coming up at the end of June, uh, that Mount Waverley gig at the Community Centre is for WordFest 2022. And I'll also be at the Willie Lit Festival. And I'd love to see um, any or all of you at those events. They're always a lot of fun. Until we speak again, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.